Hey everybody, welcome back to American History with Cheryl Boswell. So this segment and episode is going to be a little different. So this one is about government, actually, and how America formed its government and looking at the citizens and government. So some people may find it kind of boring, you know, well, that's not history. Well, it has its basis its roots in history, right? So let's dive in. So what government does and why it matters, uh, Americans sometimes appear to believe that, you know, government is an institution that does things to them and from which they need protection. And, you know, people may frown, you know, when they see like payroll tax deducted from, you know, their small paycheck, you know, they tend to resent a lot of things, but most people complain about something that government does to them, but most everyone wants the government to do a great deal for them, actually, as well. So, some of the services that people expect from government are some pretty big-ticket items, like providing national security, keeping the nation safe from terrorist attacks. We all know that the government pays for and directs the military. Right. So students attending a state university, you know, you know that state and uh, federal public dollars help support your education. And but many of the other services government provides are far less visible. You know, it's often not even clear the government plays a role at all in some things. So, for example, students grabbing a quick bite to eat between classes take it for granted that your hamburger isn't going to have bacteria in it that makes you sick. That is because of FDA regulations. You know, without federal inspection of meat, chances of contracting foodborne illnesses are pretty high. So when we refer to government, like let's define the term government, you know, it's a term generally used to describe the formal institutions that a land and its people are ruled through, right? You know, the government seeks to protect the citizens, but it does face challenges of doing so in ways that are true to, here in America, the key American political values of liberty, equality, democracy. Liberty itself means personal freedom and a government whose powers are limited by law. Equality is the ideal that all individuals should have the right to participate in political life and society on equivalent terms. Democracy means we're going to be putting considerable political power in hands of ordinary people. But most Americans find it easy to affirm all three values in principle, but in practice, you know, it's not always so clear. So since the U.S. was established as a country, Americans have been very reluctant to grant government too much power. We've always been kind of suspicious of that, right? You know, but, and they've often been very suspicious of politicians, but over the course of our country's history, We've turned to government for assistance in times of need and have strongly supported the government periods of war. At times. Not always. But at times. In 1933, you know, the power of the government was starting to expand to meet the crises that were created by the stock market crash back in 1929. The Great Depression, all the run on banks. Congress was passing legislation that brought the government into the business of home mortgages, farm mortgages, credit, relief of personal distress... More recently, when the economy fell into a big recession in 2008 and 2009, federal government took action to 
shore up the financial system, you know, oversaw restructuring of the falling auto companies, injecting hundreds of billions of dollars into this failing economy. But today, the national government is a very enormous institution, right? Programs and policies reach every corner of American life. And our government oversees all the nation's economy. It is our nation's largest employer. It provides citizens with variety of services, controls the most formidable military establishment, regulates wide range of social and commercial activities. So that is the big government, right? But looking at the trust in government has definitely declined. And ironically, even as, you know, popular dependence on government has grown, the American public's view of government has turned more sour, right? Public trust in government has definitely declined. Americans are now more likely to feel they can do little to influence the government's actions. Different groups do vary in their levels of trust. Um, At times, African Americans and Latinos express more confidence in the federal government than whites do, but even among the most supportive groups, more than half do not trust the government. And these developments are important because politically engaged citizens and public confidence in government, these are vital for a healthy democracy. So when political differences, for instance, like over the Affordable Care Act took place, President Obama's program to try and reform the American health care system, it led to a two-week partial government shutdown in 2013. The... Uh, Second dramatic shutdown over raising national debt limit in two years. Uh, Public trust dipped again to historically low levels. We saw it dip after Vietnam and the Watergate scandal by Nixon. It does tend to dip at times like that. So distrust of government greatly influenced the presidential primary elections back in 2015 and 16 when there were a lot of outsider candidates who were very critical of government and eager to depart from, you know, the business as usual in Washington. They attracted very wide support, like Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. So, doesn't matter if Americans trust their government. You know, for the most part, the answer is yes. And as we've seen, most Americans do rely on government for a wide range of services and laws that they simply take for granted. But long-term distrust in government will, it's not good. Like, it results in public refusal to pay taxes necessary to support widely approved public activities. Low levels of confidence may make it difficult for government to attract, you know, talented and effective, sorry, workers to public service. Weakening of government as a result of prolonged levels of distrust, you know, may ultimately harm the capacity of the U.S. to defend its national interests in the world economy and jeopardize its national security. So, but likewise, a weak government can do very little to assist citizens who need help in weathering periods of sharp economic or technological change. And one word I want to talk about is political efficacy, or one term, sorry. But this is the belief ordinary citizens can affect what the government does and that they can take action to make the government listen to them. And this is definitely been a declining trend, is that sense of political 
efficacy. So back in 2015, 74% of Americans said elected officials don't care what people like them think. But whereas back in 1960, only 25% were saying they felt shut out of government. What happened? You know, what happened? But accompanying this sense that ordinary people can't be heard is a growing belief that government isn't run for the benefit of all the people, right? And these views are widely shared across the age spectrum. You know, it's a widely felt loss of political efficacy is bad news for American democracy. You know, the feeling that you can't affect government decisions leads to a self-perpetuating cycle of apathy. You get declining political participation, withdrawal from political life. So why bother to participate if you believe it makes no difference? Yet the belief that you can be effective is the first step needed to influence government, folks. Not every effort of ordinary citizens to influence government will succeed, but without any effort, government decisions will be made by a smaller and smaller circle of powerful people. And this loss of broad popular influence over government actions undermines the key feature of American democracy, which is government by the people. And we got to have a citizenship or citizenry that is based on political knowledge and participation, right? Beginning way back with the ancient Greece, citizenship has meant membership in your community, in one's community. And today voting is considered the building block of citizenship, you know, having informed an active membership in a political community. It is the method by which Americans choose their elected leaders. Citizens can influence their government in many ways, including serving on a jury, lobbying, writing a letter to the editor of a local newspaper, engaging in a public rally or protest. The point of all of this is to influence the government. Every person matters. And citizens need political knowledge to figure out how best to act in their own interests. To take a simple example, if the garbage isn't collected from in front of people's homes, people need to know that this job is the responsibility of their local government, not the national government. Americans often complain the government does not respond to their needs, but sometimes the failure of government to act may simply result from citizens lacking the information necessary to present their problems to the correct government officer agency. So effective participation requires knowledge, you know. People have less knowledge today of politics and they vote at lower rates than those with more knowledge. So knowledge is the first prerequisite for achieving an increased sense of that political efficacy, folks. And digital citizenship, this is kind of the newest way to participate. More and more of a social workplace and educational activities are migrating online, right? Especially now during the time of the COVID pandemic. So opportunities for political knowledge and participation have migrated online as well. So it creates this whole new concept of digital citizenship, which is the ability to participate in society online. And it's increasingly becoming important in politics. So digital citizenship benefits individuals for sure, but it also provides advantages to society as a whole. These digital citizens 
They're more likely to be interested in politics and to discuss politics with friends, family, co-workers than individuals who do not use online political information. They're also more likely to vote and participate in other ways in elections. Individuals without internet access or the skills to participate in politics and the economy online are being left further behind. Exclusion from participating online is referred to as the digital divide. Lower income and less educated Americans, racial and ethnic minorities, people living in rural areas where they don't have access to it, you know, even the elderly, they're all less likely to have internet access. So greater political knowledge is definitely going to increase the ability of the people to influence their government. And it's the nature of government that we're turning to now. So government itself, it's going to be made up of institution and procedures that the people are ruled by, right? So to govern is to rule. You know, a government may be as simple as a tribal council that meets occasionally to advise a chief or as complex as the various vast establishments with all their forms, rules, bureaucracies found in the U.S. and also in European countries and all around the world. A more complex government is sometimes referred to as the state. So in the history of civilization, governments have not been difficult to establish. There's been thousands, if not millions of them, right? Hard part is establishing a government that lasts. Even more difficult is developing a stable government that promotes liberty, equality, and democracy. And governments vary in structure, size, way they operate. Uh, two questions are important that uh, determine how governments differ. You know, who governs and how much government control is permitted or allowed. So in some countries, government power is held by a single individual, like a king or dictator, a small group of powerful individuals like military leaders or wealthy landowners. And these types of government normally pay very little attention to popular preferences. It tends to hold power by violence or the threat of violence and is referred to as authoritarian, meaning the government recognizes no formal limit, but may be restrained by the power of other social institutions. So a system of government where control is even greater is a totalitarian system. And this is where the government recognizes no formal limits on its power, and they want to try and absorb or eliminate other social institutions that might challenge it. So uh, classic examples of totalitarian rule, Nazi Germany under Adolf Hitler, Soviet Union under Joseph Stalin, Those are perfect, perfect examples of that. Whereas in contrast to democracy, this is a political system that, you know, allows citizens to play a very significant part in the governmental process. We're vested with the power to rule themselves, usually through election of key public officials. And so under such a system, constitutional government is the norm. You know, we have formal effective limits placed on the powers of the government. And... You know, authoritarian government at times may bend to popular wishes. Democratic governments don't just automatically follow the wishes of the majority. The point, you know, is that these contrasting systems of government sorry, are based on very different assumptions and practices, right? 
So in America, we had the good fortune of living in a country where limits are placed on what governments can do and how they can do it. So constitutional democracies, you know, they were unheard of before the modern era. Prior to the 18th and 19th centuries, governments seldom were seeking out and rarely received the support of their ordinary subjects. And beginning in the 17th century, back in the 1600s, a handful of Western countries, uh, two important changes started to take place with the character and conduct of government. So the first was governments began to acknowledge formal limits on their power. Second was a small number of governments began to provide the ordinary citizen with a formal voice in public affairs through the vote. The desirability of limits on the government and expansion of popular influence were at the heart of the American Revolution back in 1776. You know, we had a very hotly debated slogan, no taxation without representation. You know, that was debated from the beginning of the revolution all the way through the adoption of the modern constitution in 1789. But even before this, there was a tradition of limiting government, expanding citizen participation in the political process that had been developing throughout Western Europe. So to understand how the relationship between rulers and the rule was changed, we got to broaden the focus to then look into account events in Europe as well as in America. So the, we, so kind of two separate parts looking at first is going to be effort to put limits on government. Second is that effort to expand the influence of the people through access to the government and politics. All right. So the key force behind imposing limits on government power was a new social class that rose up known as the bourgeoisie. And bourgeoisie is a French word for the freemen of the city or bourg, right? Being part of the bourgeoisie later became associated with being middle-class and with involvement in commerce or industry. And to try and gain a share of control of government, joining or even displacing the kings, aristocrats, gentry, everyone that had dominated government for centuries, the bourgeoisie wanted to change existing institutions, especially parliaments, into instruments of real political participation. And parliaments had existed for centuries, but were generally controlled by the aristocrats, by the wealthy, by the elite. Bourgeoisie embraced parliaments as a means by which they could exert weight of their higher superior numbers, and they had a growing economic advantage against their aristocratic rivals. So at the same time, the bourgeoisie sought to restrain the capacity of governments to threaten these interests by placing formal or constitutional limits on the governmental power. So motivated primarily by the need to, you know, protect and defend their own interests, the bourgeoisie did advance a lot of the principles that became the central underpinnings of individual liberty for all citizens, like freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of conscience, freedom from arbitrary search and seizure. They generally did not favor democracy as we know it. They were more advocates of electoral and representative institutions, but they did favor property requirements, some other restrictions to limit political participation to the upper and middle classes. So, in America, expansion of participation to even larger segments of society uh, 
has seen, you know, mostly with expanding voting rights, it occurred because competing segments of the bourgeoisie wanted to gain political advantage by reaching out and mobilizing the support of working and lower class groups that wanted the opportunity to take part in politics. You know, excluded groups were often agitating for greater participation. Seldom was the agitation by itself enough to secure the right to participate. So usually expansion of voting rights resulted from a combination of pressure from below and help from above. So the pattern of suffrage expansion by groups uh, has been pretty typical in American history. So early in the nation's history used to be only property owners could do it. So like if you're a white male, at least 21 years old, own property, you could vote. Then the property owning requirement was gone by the Jacksonian period, Andrew Jackson's time. After the Civil War, one of the main reasons the Republican Party moved to try and enfranchise newly freed slaves was to use the support of the former slaves to maintain Republican control over the defeated South. And in the early 20th century, upper middle class progressives advocated for women's suffrage because they believed that women were less likely to support the reforms that were touted by the progressive movement. And expansion of participation means more and more people have a legal right to take part in politics. And politics is an important term. In the broadest sense, it refers to conflicts over character, membership, policies of any organization to which people belong. Um, but politics, you know is a phenomenon that can be found in any organization, but it's a little narrower in the sense we're talking about here. So politics here, we'll use it to refer only to conflicts and struggles over leadership structure and policies of government. So the goal of politics, as we define it, is to have a share or a say in the competition, composition, sorry, of the government's leaders and leadership. So how the government's organized, what the policies are going to be, having a share is called power. You know, influence over a government's leadership, organization, or politics, or their influence, right? So politics can take many forms, you know, blogging, posting opinion pieces online, voting, sending emails to government officials, lobbying legislatures on behalf of a program, taking part in a protest march, even violent demonstrations, right? But a system of government where the populace selects representatives that play a significant role in government decision-making, we usually call this a republic or representative democracy. And so a system that allows citizens to vote directly on laws and policies, we call it a direct democracy. So at the national level, America is a representative democracy. You know, citizens select government officials, but the citizens, we don't vote on legislation. Some states and cities do have provisions for that direct legislation through things like the ballot initiative, popular referendum, and we may talk about initiatives and referendums at another time. But uh, identity, American identity, it's definitely changed over time too. So over the course of American history, politicians, religious leaders, prominent scholars, ordinary Americans have, you know, kind of puzzled over, thought about the answer to 
the fundamental question of, you know, well, who are Americans, right? It's not surprising that, you know, it's relatively simple question, but it can provoke a lot of conflict. So as the American population has grown, it's become more diverse in nearly every dimension imaginable. So at the time of the founding, when the U.S. consisted of 13 states all along the eastern seaboard, 81% of Americans counted by the census, which our first one was done in 1790, traced their roots to Europe, mostly England and Northern Europe. Nearly one in five were of African origin, vast majority of whom were slaves. There was also an unknown number of Native Americans that did not get counted by the census because the government did not consider them Americans. Fast forward to 1900. So the country was now stretched from one coast to the other all across the continent, had very sharply altered racial and ethnic composition. Waves of immigrants, mainly from Europe, uh, helped boast a population of 76 million people. The black population was standing around 12% residents that traced their origins to Latin America or Asia were accounting for less than 1% of the entire population. And although mainly from European origin, the American population has become much more ethnically diverse as immigrants. So first from Germany, then Ireland, finally Southern and Eastern Europe, and they all made their way to the United States. And in 1910, the foreign-born population of the U.S. reached its height of around 14.7%. So as the population has grown more diverse, there's been some anxiety about the ethnic identity that's risen of Americans. And much like today, politicians and scholars argued whether the country should absorb or can absorb large numbers of immigrants like this. The debate... um, was going to be including issues, whether immigrants' political and social values were compatible with American democracy, whether they would learn English, what diseases they might bring into the U.S., and the religious affiliations of immigrants raised concerns as well. First immigrants to the U.S. were overwhelmingly Protestant, many of them fleeing religious persecution. Rival of Germans and the Irish in the mid-1800s met increasing numbers of Catholics, Large-scale immigration of the early 20th century threatened to reduce percentage of Protestants significantly. Many Eastern European immigrants pouring into the country were Jewish. Southern Europeans were mostly Catholic that were coming in. A more religiously diverse country challenged the implicit Protestantism that was embedded in a lot of aspects of American public life. Following World War I, Congress was responding to a lot of this fear around immigration with new laws that very strictly limited the number of immigrants who could enter the country every year. And this was a new system Congress established called the National Origins Quota System. And it was based on the nation's population in 1890 before the wave of immigrants from Eastern and Southern Europe arrived. And there's kind of a hierarchy of emissions this new system set up. Northern European countries would receive generally generous quotas of new immigrants, Eastern and Southern European countries were very small quotas. The restrictions uh, took down the numbers of immigrants so that by 1970, the foreign-born population in the U.S. was at an all-time low of 5%. Official efforts to use racial and ethnic criteria to restrict American population uh, wasn't new. First census, our very first census like we talked about, didn't even count Native Americans. Native Americans weren't even 
granted uh, the right to vote and declared citizens until 1924. Most people of African descent were not officially citizens until 1868 when the 14th Amendment conferred citizenship on the freed slaves. Back in 1790, the federal government tried to limit the non-white population with the law stipulating only free whites could become naturalized citizens. It wasn't until 1870 Congress lifted the ban on naturalization of non-whites and restrictions would apply to Asians as well. Back in 1882, we had the Chinese Exclusion Act that outlawed the entry of Chinese laborers to the U.S. and a lot of additional barriers were enacted after World War I meaning virtually no Asians could enter the country as immigrants until 1943, when China became our ally in World War II, and we lifted those provisions. People of Hispanic origin don't fit simply into the American system of racial classification. Right, 1930, census counted people of Mexican origin as non-white, but a decade later, that decision was reversed. Not until 1970 did the census officially begin counting persons of Hispanic origin, noting that they could be any race. And as, you know, this kind of history suggests, American citizenship has always been tied to whiteness, even as the meaning of white shifted over time. So by 2000, immigration had very profoundly transformed the nation's racial and ethnic profile again. And the main cause was Congress's decision in 1965 to lift the very tight immigration restrictions of the 1920s. And it resulted, among other things, in the growth of the Latino population. And uh, about two and a half percent of the population now identifies itself as of two or more races. That's a new category that was added to the census back in 2000. And although it is just a small percentage of the population, the multiracial category points toward a future and where the lines separating traditional labels of racial identification may be blurring. You know, they may start to go away. So the new patterns of immigration, uh, they did combine with a number of other factors to alter religious affiliations of Americans. Back in 1900, 80% of the population was Protestant. By 2014, only 46.6% of Americans identified themselves as Protestant. Other groups you look at are, you know, Catholics, Jews, Muslims. We even have Buddhists and Taoists now, right? We have a very big melting pot. You know, one of the uh, most important changes in religious affiliation during the latter half of the 20th century was the percentage of people who professed no organized religion and so the changes do suggest a shift in american religious identity that although the u.s thinks of itself as a judeo-christian nation uh, by 2014 the numbers had fallen to 72 and a half percent of the adult population it's no longer the case and as america has grown population expanded and diversified the age profile has shifted with it as well so as life expectancy has increased, number of old Americans has grown with it. And an aging population poses challenges to the U.S. As the elderly population grows, the working age population shrinks. Questions come up about how we'll fund programs for elderly like Social Security. 
And so over the nation's history, Americans have changed in other ways as well, moving from mostly rural settings and small towns to large urban areas. And the American population has shifted regionally as well. So in the past 50 years, many Americans have left the Northeast and Midwest and moved to the South and Southwest. And critics, you know, charge the American political system that was created when America was a largely rural society underrepresents urban areas. Constitutional provision allocating each state to senators overrepresents sparsely populated rural states and underrepresents urban states where the population is a lot more concentrated. So, as congressional seats get reapportioned to reflect population shifts, a lot of problems that plague the Midwest and Northeast, like decline in manufacturing jobs, they receive less attention in national politics. And Americans have fallen into some pretty diverse economic groups throughout American history. For most of American history, most people were relatively poor working people, mostly farmers. A small wealthy elite uh, did grow larger in the 1890s during what we call the Gilded Age. But uh, by 1928, about 25% of the total annual income goes to the top 1% of earners. And after the New Deal, though, large middle class started taking shape and the share going to those at the top then dropped. By 1976, top 1% were only taking home 9% of the nation's annual income, whereas back in 1928, they were taking home 46% of the annual income. Since then, though, Income or economic, sorry, inequality has definitely widened as a tiny group of the super rich has emerged. But at the same time, the incomes of broad middle class have stagnated, right? So it's a lot of changes we're looking at with the citizens in America. So the shifting contours of American people have raised a lot of challenging questions about our politics and governing arrangements. Population growth has spurred politically charged debates about how the population should be apportioned among congressional districts, and it's also transformed very to the close democratic relationship between the congressional representatives and their constituents that were envisioned by the framers. So the framers stipulated the number of representatives in the House shall not exceed one for every 30,000 constituents. Today, the average number, the average member of Congress, an average House of Representatives member, represents 721,641 constituents. That's insane. You can't adequately represent the people when you're having, when you're just one person answering for well over 700,000 people. Can't do that. Lots that needs to change, right? But immigration and the cultural religious changes it entails provokes a lot of heated debates 100 years ago, still today. Different languages and customs immigrants bring to the U.S. trigger fear among some that the country is changing in ways that may undermine American values and alter fundamental identities. Yet a changing population has been one of the biggest constraints in American history. And no ideal is more central to American values than liberty. 
Declaration of Independence defined three inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Preamble to the Constitution identified the need to secure the blessings of liberty as one of the key reasons for which the Constitution was drawn up. So for Americans, liberty, this means freedom from government control as well as economic freedom. Both are very closely linked to the idea of limited government, meaning the powers are defined and limited by a Constitution. In the Constitution's first amendments, first ten amendments, sorry, we collectively call them the Bill of Rights. That's not what they're called, that's what they are known as officially. They are the Bill of Rights. Above all, they preserve individual personal liberties and rights. And liberty has come to mean many of the freedoms guaranteed in the Bill of Rights. Freedom of speech and writing, the right to assemble freely, the right to practice religious beliefs without interference from the government. And over the course of American history, the whole scope of personal liberties has expanded as laws are becoming more tolerant and individuals have successfully used the courts to challenge restrictions on their individual freedoms. Far fewer restrictions exist today on the press, political speech, and individual moral behavior than in the early years of the nation. Even so, conflicts persist over how personal freedoms and liberties should be extended and when personal liberties violate community norms. So, in addition to personal freedom, the American concept of liberty means economic freedom. Right? Since the founding, economic freedom has been linked to capitalism, free markets, protection of private property. In the first century of the Republic, support for capitalism often meant support for the doctrine of laissez-faire, which literally means let do in French. And that's an economic system where the means of production and distribution are privately owned and operated for profit with minimal or no government interference. Laissez-faire capitalism allowed very little room for the national government to regulate trade or restrict the use of private property, even in the public interest. Americans still strongly support capitalism and economic liberty, but they now also endorse some restrictions on economic freedoms to protect the public. Federal and state governments now deploy a wide array of regulations in the name of public protection. These include health and safety laws, environmental rules, workplace regulations. Fierce disagreements often erupt over what the proper scope of government regulations should be, not surprisingly. So what some people regard as protecting the public, others see as an infringement of their own freedom to run their business and use their property as they see fit. So the Declaration of Independence declares as its first self-evident truth that all men are created equal. As central as it is to the American political creed, however, equality has been a less well-defined ideal than liberty because people interpret equality in different ways. Most Americans share the ideal of equality of opportunity, wherein everyone has the freedom to use whatever talents and wealth they have to reach their fullest potential. It's hard, though, for Americans to reach an agreement on what constitutes equality of opportunity. Must a group's past inequalities be remedied in order to ensure equal opportunity in the present? Should inequalities in the legal, political, and economic spheres be given the same weight? And in contrast to liberty, which requires limits on the role of government, equality implies an obligation of the government to the people. Americans do make clear distinctions between political equality and social or economic equality. Political equality, we refer to the right to participate in politics equally. 
based on the principle of one person, one vote. And so beginning from a very restricted definition of political community, which originally only was propertied white men, the U.S. has moved much closer to an ideal of political equality. Broad support for this ideal has helped expand the American political community and extend the right to participate to all. There's a lot of conflict that remains whether the political system makes it harder for some people to participate and easier for others and about whether the role of money in politics has drowned out the public voice. Americans agree that all citizens should have an equal opportunity to participate and that government should enforce that right. And in part because Americans believe that individuals are free to work as hard as they choose, they've always been less concerned about social or economic inequality. Many Americans they regard economic differences as the consequence of individual choices, virtues, or failures. And because of that, Americans tend to be less supportive than most Europeans of government action to ensure economic equality. So the essence of democracy is the participation of the people in choosing their rulers and the people's ability to influence what those rulers do. In a democracy, political power ultimately comes from the people. And the principle of democracy in which political authority rests ultimately in the hands of the people is known as popular sovereignty. That's what we call it, popular sovereignty. So the political authority rests in the hands of the people. In the U.S., popular sovereignty and political equality make politicians accountable to the people. And ideally... Democracy envisions an engaged citizenry prepared to exercise its power over rulers. And as we noted before, the U.S. is a representative democracy, meaning the people do not rule directly, but instead exercise power through elected representatives. And forms of participation in a democracy vary greatly, but voting is a key element of the representative democracy that the American founders established. And... American democracy rests on the principle of majority rule with minority rights. The democratic principle that a government follows the preferences of the majority of voters but protects the interests of the minority. Majority rule means that the wishes of the majority determine what government does. The House of Representatives, which is a large body elected directly by the people, was designed in particular to ensure majority rule. But the founders feared that popular majorities could turn government into a tyranny of the majority where individual liberties could be violated or would be violated. So concern for individual rights has really been a part of American democracy from the beginning and the rights enumerated in the Bill of Rights and enforced through the courts provide a very important check on the power of majority. So what does all this kind of mean, right? <laughs> Americans express some pretty mixed views about government, right? Almost everyone complains about government. General trust in government has significantly declined in the past few decades, several decades actually. Despite this growing distrust, when asked about particular government activities or programs, the majority of Americans generally support the activities that government undertakes. And these conflicting views reflect the tensions in American political culture. There's no perfect balance between liberty, equality, and democracy. 
in recent years, finding the right mix of government actions to achieve all these different goals has become especially troublesome. Some say the government initiatives designed to promote equality infringe on individual liberty, while others point to the need for government to take action in the face of growing inequality. Sharp political debate over competing goals alienates a lot of people who react by then withdrawing from politics. But in contrast to totalitarian and authoritarian forms of government, democracy rests on the principle of popular sovereignty, and there's no true democracy that can function properly without knowledgeable and engaged citizens. So, the remarkable diversity of the American people represents a big strength for the American democracy, as well as some big challenges, right? There, we have shifting religious, racial, and ethnic and immigration status of Americans throughout history. It's always provoked fears about whether American values can withstand such dramatic shifts. Changing face of America also sparks a lot of hope for America that embodies its fundamental values more fully. Demographic changes will continue to raise a lot of these questions. So, you know, as our American population grows older, programs for the elderly are going to take up an increasing share of the federal budget. But to be successful, a nation has to invest in its young people, right? Cost of college has risen in recent years. Many students drop out as they discover cost of college is too high. Or they graduate and find themselves saddled with loans that take decades to pay back. But in a world of, you know, economic competition that's, you know, increasing more and more, higher education has become increasingly important for people seeking economic security. And moreover, an educated population is critical to the future prosperity of a country as a whole. You know, so are there ways to support the elderly and the young at the same time? Is it fair to cut back assistance to the elderly who have worked a lifetime for all their benefits? If we decrease assistance to the elderly, will they stay in the labor market and make the job hunt for young people even more difficult? So we really don't have any easy answers for these demographic changes. But I hope you enjoyed this podcast. This one was about citizens and government and what it means to kind of get involved. So stick around. I hope you guys like my podcast. I'm going to be interjecting some more government podcasts in the future, not just history, but government as well, because we are in a crucial election year, presidential election year, and there's a lot going on out there, folks. So tune in and I hope you learned something. Bye.